you know, one of the first things I did when we were getting to the place of saying we're going to merge was I took him out for dinner. And then at the end of the dinner, I said, oh, your wife couldn't join us. Well, here, let's buy a dinner for her, too, because you keep the sound man happy. They can make you look good or... So, uh, this series in what's the, what is in a name. Did you know names matter? Um, my wife and I are, are eliminating 95% of our possessions. We're trying to give stuff to our kids. Uh, two of them we're able to give stuff to because they have a home. One has a home, but it's in Japan. It's really hard to ship stuff over there. And so we talked our son into storing our daughter's stuff. So not in our basement anymore. But one of the things we gave to Josiah, our oldest, was his baby book. And I didn't realize that he was going to read it really quick. And he made lots of comments about it. But the first comment he made was what his mother and then I wrote under the section about why we named him Josiah. Names matter. They matter biblically. Adam was called uh, after a word for ground. Because God took ground, formed it, breathed into it, and humans existed. Now, you know the old joke about the scientist and God competing and the scientist saying, I can create life too. And God saying, okay, well, let me show you. And he took the ground and breathed into it. And there was man. And the scientist picked up the ground. And God said, no, 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 go get your own ground. Eve was called life. Eve means life, because she was the mother of all human life. It goes back to Eve. Jacob actually had two names. He was called Surplanter, because early in the story of, of one of our, our patriarchs, one of our fathers in the faith, he was a Surplanter. He stole his brother's birthright. He stole, he tricked to get his brother's blessing. And when God finally took him to the place of moving him into living out his call in the, the greater purposes of God, he wrestled with God all night. And then he renamed him Israel, which means wrestles with God. Names matter. Daniel, who struggled over um, living in a foreign nation where they required him to eat things that the law didn't allow him to eat, and he chose not to, and he thought he would, would have to suffer because he was choosing not to follow what Nebuchadnezzar was saying. He said, well, let's do a test here. You guys eat what you eat, we'll eat what we eat, and let's see what happens. And in the end, he, he turned out well, and, you know, his name means God is judge. The Scriptures are full of names mattering. Jesus even points out to Peter and makes a theological statement about Peter meaning rock. In fact, what is Jesus, uh, Jesus? God, yeah, Yah, saves. That God chose the name of his son who would save the whole world. In fact, you can argue save the universe because his salvation was not just us, but it was all of creation, which was marred by sin. Jesus, God, Saves. I often like to point out that my mother wisely called me Matthew, which means gift of God. We see this in so many places. We see it in denominations. Uh, if we were Lutheran, it would be because we 
can talk to me. It's okay. What's that? Yeah, Martin Luther. We follow the teachings of Martin Presbyterian. It's a form of governance. Good. I, you know, I thought these people would talk back to me. I thought we were getting a younger congregation that believed in dialogue, not just monologue. I'm, I'm sorry, I missed something. Okay, let's try it again. Pentecostal holiness. Yeah, the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit fell out, and, and this, this, it's, it's doctrinal. It's doctrinally driven. Um, I love this one, Salvation Army. I love that name. I really do. It says a lot about what our, what our goal and purposes are as, as the church. Let's get a little more uh, uh, personal here. Brethren. Yeah, it's, it's the community of God. We really value the community of, of, of the, the brethren, the people. Independent. Okay. So, Canvas Community Church. Um, you know, you can argue that we tried to say, okay, Canvas Church, uh, there was a lot of momentum. It was a great name. We, we let's take that. But Grace Community, we want to add the word community to it. And it's kind of a mixture together. But for me, there was a much deeper theological reason. And I think it was true for you as well. And so we want to look at the verse, at the passage. And I know I've, I've listened to the last, well, all but one of the sermons that were given during this season of, of Your Part Matters. And, and it was mentioned office, often that this word canvas, it comes from uh, Ephesians 2, verse 10. But I'd, I'd like to unpack it with you this morning if I can. And let me start by saying that specific verse is the linchpin between the first half of Ephesians 2 and the second half of Ephesians 2. The first half of Ephesians 2 really addresses our individual salvation. We sang about, I'm a child of God. By the way, at some point, I'm going to ask you to pop those slides up for the song, the second song we did, of I'm a child of God, and I, I walk through the waters, you know, that God held back, and all that kind of stuff. But, but Ephesians 2, verse 10, is the climax of that passage, and I'll show it to you in the text. But it's also the foundation for the rest of chapter 2, which is also talking about salvation, but it's not talking about individual salvation. It's all about a collective salvation. God saves a person, He also saves the people. God redeems a person, He also redeems a people. That God creates a person in Him, but He also creates a people in Him. And this, this peace that we have of Ephesians chapter 2 and the verse in the middle, the one that we've chosen our name from, is the climax of the first and the foundation of the second. So what I'd like to do is walk you through the five words that, that are in the beginning of that. We're going to take three weeks to do it. And today, my assignment is the first five words, for we are his canvas, or his workmanship. And since the word canvas is in our name, I'm going to start there, and then I'll back up and I'll walk through the words. Um, canvas means, it comes from the word poema. It literally means work or product. It's God's, we are God's product. And some translations put it as we are his workmanship. Um, 
And it's used in Koine Greek work and product in several places, but it only shows up twice in the whole New Testament. And I'm going to reference both of those where they show up. But in both cases, it and the first one you can see it so clearly, the second one you can see it as well, both are by Paul. It, it references some theological work by Karl Barth that said it's not just a product, but it's not just a work, but it carries a connotation of a work of art. That, that God has, has written a poem, or he's painted a canvas. And it's going to be kind of fun because the canvas is kind of like the kingdom of God. It is here. It's done. God has finished his masterpiece, and it's unbelievable. And yet the kingdom's coming. And so he's, he's still painting. He's still, he's still, it's done! But he's, he's still designing. He's still painting. It's a, it's a work. It's interesting that when Paul puts it in there, this word for work, poema, he puts it, uh, but he uses another word for work, and he uses it twice. He bookends it on either side of Ephesians 2, and it's the word that we most often see in the Bible for works. Because he says in 2, verse 8 and 9, uh, and you could probably quote it, or at least some of you can. If you went through VBS, you were probably made to quote this verse. If you've been through Evangelism Training 101, you've probably been made to memorize this verse. For we are saved by grace through faith, not of yourselves, not of works, lest what? Anyone can boast. What is fascinating to me is that every evangelism training course I took and every VBS I've been part of, they always end there and they never finish the rest of the thought. We can quote the first two, but getting around to the third one. But in this, in this third one, Paul is pulling off of the, the eight and nine where good works cannot save you. God is perfect, and we can never arrive at perfection on our own. We can never do enough. That, that It requires this incredible act of forgiveness from God. Someone has said that, that, in a sense, we have not just broken God's law, but we broke God's heart. And that if, if I ran over your daughter with a car because I was texting or drinking, and I would go to the court, and I'd be found guilty, and I'd serve my sentence. And when I was done with my sentence, I'd pay my fine. And when I came out of that context, as far as the law is concerned, I'm good to go. But as far as mom's concerned, I'm only good to go when she can give a gracious, unearned act of forgiveness. That our good works can never save us. We can never be good enough. It's by grace, and we, we, we don't even get that by doing good things to show God we're worthy of this grace, because then it's not grace. It's by faith. We, we receive it. But then he bookends this good works, because Paul cannot imagine anyone ever thinking that we can make it to God by following the law. He tried. And he realized how futile it was. And yet on the flip side, Paul cannot imagine a salvation that is not resulting in good works. But we are his, his workmanship, his canvas, created in Christ Jesus, unto good works. And then let me reiterate it, Paul says, which God has actually planned ahead of time for you. 
Now, I'm not going to do that passage. We'll leave it to Ryan. I'm not going to take your material. But, but it's, it's critical that Paul takes this ergon, this word work, and in between it, he uses this unique word that only shows up twice in the entire New Testament. And we translate it canvas, this work of art. So the first one, it's a different canvas than this one, but it's the same person making the canvas. It's in Romans 1.20. It's fascinating. It's a different canvas, but both canvases have the exact same end game, the exact same purpose. In the Romans 1.20, the canvas is his creation, his original creation. Uh, I just spent the last six weeks in Yellowstone. Um, most beautiful place in the world. Uh, just, there's no place like it. Wilderness. And, and we saw four grizzly bears four different times. One of them was swimming in Lake Yellowstone. He pulled over our car 50 feet off the beach. And he'd swim for a while, and then he'd stop, and he'd stand up, and he'd look at us. And then he'd swim a little farther. And meanwhile, all these other cars came. And so the road was full of cars. This poor bear was trying to get out of the water. We all have him trapped in. But, I mean, unbelievable. Um, Almost every morning, almost every evening, we would hear elk bugle. I mean, just geothermal. I was going to show a picture, and I thought my, I shouldn't do it the first Sunday my wife's here because she wouldn't be happy with me. But it's a picture of her. Um, she likes to be behind. In fact, she said to me she was hoping to sit in the back, and when she stood back there, she couldn't find a seat, so she had to come up front. I mentioned Providence, but that didn't help either. So it's a, but it's a picture of her sitting in this pool that's about the size of our stage, and it's the outflow from a natural hot pot. It's about 104 degrees. You can get in. It's like the perfect hot tub temperature. And you're looking down over this river that flows through a, a meandering meadow that is nestled underneath these snow-capped mountains or these snow-dusted mountains, and sitting there and hearing elk bugle. And I mean, my only word was, God. I mean, he just did this amazing canvas in creation. But if you read Romans 1.20, there's a purpose for this canvas in creation. It's not just the purpose of creating this artwork, but he says very clearly that it shows God's invisible qualities. And then he names two of them in the, in the original canvas that God does, this original creation. His eternal power, and his divine nature. And he goes on to say, you're, you know, people are without excuse because how can you walk in the, in the beauty of his canvas and not say, God, look into the sky. Look at the mountains. Look at the ocean. You choose it. Go up here 20 minutes and get on the AT, Appalachian Trail, and go through the roller coaster. And it just screams, God. But theologians have told us for a long time this natural revelation only shows us God the Creator. It shows His incredible power and His divine nature that He is all-powerful and that He is omniscient and that He's the omnis of, of all things. But to know the Redeemer God took special revelation. And so here in our passage, when we have been chosen the name Canvas that Paul used for this second New creation of God. Its purpose was to show God's invisible qualities as Redeemer. That the church of Jesus Christ 
the bride of God's Son is designed to display God's redemption. Canvas one, creation. Canvas two, new creation. His son's bride. That's why we took the name. The first is God's creator, God is creator. The second is God is redeemer. And you could argue, actually, that the, the meta-themes of the whole Bible fall into, or the meta-theme of the whole Bible falls into those two themes. Creator, redeemer. The whole Bible. And by the way, we get to play into those themes, but our two parts are fall and faith. Faithless or faithful. And uh, I'm not going to today, but you could argue there's actually a third canvas coming. And that's not about God the Creator or God the Redeemer, but about God the Consummator. And there will be a new heaven and a new earth, and God's people will be with Him, and you will not need a sun because His light will be such in our presence that we will know. In fact, when we're there, we will know as fully as we are known. I don't know about you, but, but I do not know me as well as God knows me. And I will know not just me, but all as fully as God knows me. That's a, that's a third canvas I look forward to. Okay. That's the bulk of my message. But I do want to unpack the other four words. First one, four. Number four, we are his canvas. Four. Verse 10, by the simple word four, it indicates that verse 10 is the penultimate. It's the consequence. It's the why of verse 8 and 9. That's why I'm personally bothered that in Evangelism 101, we get people to memorize 8 and 9, and we never get around to the why of the 8 and the 9. I mean, it's really good to know that we're saved by grace through faith. That's important. I mean, it's not of works. It's not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. And, 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 and so we can't take credit. That's important to know. But unfortunately, when we end there... We don't end with something wrong, but we end with something insufficient. It devolves into an individual salvation as the end goal rather than a goal moving toward a bigger picture. Salvation is about being made part, part of God's canvas, whose goal is to display God. God, did God save you because he loved you? Yes. Did God save you because he wants you in heaven? Yes. But folks, God saved you because he wants to invite you into his mission, which is bigger than just you and I being in heaven. It's much bigger. Folks, we're his masterpiece, his canvas. Four. You know, the... Uh, St. Patrick, um, which we're going to celebrate St. Patrick's Day soon. And just so you're aware, I'm sure most of you know, but maybe there are some who don't. St. Patrick's Day is not about a guy wearing a green hat, holding a green four-leaf clover, drinking green beer. That, that Patrick actually was at retirement age. By the way, I'm preaching it myself now. Because I really want to retire. <laughs> but he was at retirement age. And he had been uh, 
kidnapped as a child and made to be a slave in Ireland and, and by God's divine providence escaped. And at the end of, near the end of his life, he had become a priest and he felt called to go back and he went to the church and said, can I go back as a missionary? And they said, those guys are unredeemable. They're a bunch of warring tribes that run at you naked and scream, and, and they're unredeemable. They question whether they actually subsisted as people. Were they some kind of subpar? And he said, no, God's called me. I'm sure God's... So finally, they, they let him go, and it was kind of like, you know, well, what bad can he do? And unfortunately, my library is all over the country right now. I have some here, and, some, and I couldn't find the book that, that lays this out. So I'm going from memory. But in, from retirement until the end of his life, he and his team was able to win about 37 separate unwinnable tribes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. 30, I'm not talking about 37 churches. We're talking about planting multiple churches in 37 different warring tribes of people who were unredeemable, according to the people of that day. He did it not by following the Roman model where we present the gospel, people believe, and then they get to belong. But he flipped that model on his head. He went with, with others who were as committed as him because the only people who go to a place like that are people who are really committed to the gospel. It's, it's kind of like a, a friend of mine, Bajoy Raul, in India had won over numerous tribes in Odessa, at that time, it was called Arissa, India. And, I mean, these were people who literally lived in trees, didn't wear clothes when they accepted Christ, and spontaneously actually started wearing clothes. And every one of the evangelists he sent out there, they knew that they were likely to get malaria when they went. And someone, <laughs> an American, when he was reporting, said, well, if they knew they were going to get malaria, why did they go? Uh, these, he had a community of people who said, in kind of our context, who cares about malaria? It's about the gospel. And so they went into these places, and they didn't present the gospel. They lived it. They were a canvas. They were a canvas in a heathen nation, heathen warring tribes. And as they lived as this canvas, they practiced radical hospitality. They invited people into their community to come and you can just belong. We love you just the way you are. We welcome you. Radical, radical hospitality. And as these people lived among these committed, this canvas of God, they said, man, I want to be part of that canvas. And they said, I think I believe this stuff. And so the altar call, if you will, was not to believe, but to commit. We welcome you in to the kingdom of God. Folks, that's the concept that Paul is trying to get at. For by grace, through faith, have you been saved, not of works, not of yourselves, lest anyone boast. For we are his canvas. You're going to hear some words from Ryan and I over the next couple months. You've already heard them several times from Ryan while I was gone. But the concept that we're a kingdom outpost, that we, we are a canvas of God living in a world that 
that need to be part of the canvas. We're, 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 a friend of mine used to say, I'm a Christian traveling on an American passport. You know, uh, prior to the Reformation, the, the interaction between the church and the state was the church and the state were one. It's Catholicism. And then the Reformers said, no, 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 we're not there. But they didn't go too far because they said, no, 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 it, it, the church has fallen and the, and the state has fallen and we have to do better. And so it's the church over the state. And we're going to Christianize the state. And that's why you found in, at the time of the Reformation, it was kind of like Winchester was during the Civil War. You guys know during the Civil War, Winchester was part of the South and part of the North and went back and forth 70 times. 70 times. And they actually did the same thing. They would become, the king would become Lutheran and they were all Lutheran. And then the king would convert to Catholicism and they'd all become Catholic. And then convert back. And sometimes in the same day, depending on who was winning the battle. Because the reformers had this kind But the radical reformers said, we're not into that. We're a part of a separate kingdom. It's the kingdom of God, and it's not the kingdom of this world. It is in this world, but it's not of the world. And we are called to be an outpost. We're called to be a canvas in the midst of a world that is not that canvas. But God wants to incorporate into his canvas. The founding pastor of Grace Community, 20 years ago, 25, whatever, used to say, we love you just as you are but we love you too much to leave you there. And I think that that was, although I didn't hear those words, a sentiment that we shared. We're a kingdom outpost, but we welcome radical hospitality. Come. Come. We love you just as you are. And that when you find that you believe, we invite you to come in. We invite you to be part of the kingdom outpost. We invite you to be part of this radical reformation. Okay. Uh, canvas for the next one, for we. Uh, can back there, I, I gave you a quick warning. The second song we did, can you put the words up there really quick? Because I noticed this. Folks, he didn't say, for I am his canvas. That's kind of an American translation. For I am his canvas. No, no, no. For we. There is this collective nature for what he wanted to say. Uh, I am no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. If, if Paul were writing this in, in 1 through 9, that'd be great. But if he's going to put it in verse 10, he's going to say, we are no longer slaves to fear. We are children of God. Go to the next slide. Okay, maybe that slide goes twice. Go to the first slide. Go ahead and pump two. Okay. You surround who with a song? Us. In fact, by the way, we are his song. Next one. Deliverance from my enemies and all my fear. Really? Next one. I mean, you hear where I'm going. This one that it really jumped out at me. Okay, so my mother's womb, you've chosen me. I can take that one. We'll leave that individual. Love is called my name. Been born again into your family. Oh, that's good. We're getting there. Go to the next one. Your blood flows through. We could say our veins. Next one. One of these talked about the, the uh, yeah, you split the sea so who can walk through? 
I mean, is that how the story reads, folks? I don't know. I missed that part of the story. I thought it was the nation of Israel that walked through. I, shoot, is there another Bible that I'm missing somewhere? Now, I'm not criticizing the song, and I, I'm not all about rewriting people. People do artwork. They do an amazing artwork. But do you realize how individualistic our society really is? All of our framework. I was just at, at home with my mom on Friday, and I was talking about my birth. I didn't realize this, but it makes sense. The doctor and the nurse were in the birthing room, but not even my dad was allowed in there. Not a, there, there was no coach. And now today, we, we often, by the way, in some ways, this current generation is slowly getting better. We're getting a little more collectivist. But when I was born, I, I was born with just my mom and the medical community. And when I was born, they didn't put my mom, me on my mom. They took away and did what they call APCAR or something. They did a bunch of like, checks and everything to make sure that I was healthy before I got to come over. And then when I went home, the goal was to get me into my own crib and then get me from my own crib into my own room and into my own bed. And then we celebrate my first steps. I mean, how many fathers or mothers have you heard lament because they weren't there for their child's first steps? Because independence Individualism is so important to us. You go to India, and you'll find three to four kids in one bed. And that bed is in mom and dad's bedroom. Uh, you go to India, and literally, a child often is not put on the floor until they're about one. They're carried. They have these, these wraps that they put around the child and over their back, and, and the child is, is part of an us from the very get-go, from the very beginning of life. Uh, you know, my, my wife uh, couldn't wait until Josiah could eat on his own. And I got to tell you, she started it too early for my gross meter. When, when she took the plate of spaghetti with all the sauce, and, I mean, there was spaghetti more on him than in his mouth, and I just, you know... Honey, I got to go. My gross meter has overloaded. Because we value independence. And I'm not saying independence is wrong, but I am saying it becomes filters over which we read our scriptures. Because there are as many or more collective symbols, collective metaphors for salvation communally as there are individuals. We're living stones, but we're living stones built into a spiritual house. We're not a stone on a hill. We're not even a building on a hill. We're a city on a hill. We're a body. We're, you know, we talk about being priests, that we're all priests. We're a priesthood. We're the flock of God. We're the bride of God. In fact, the rest of Ephesians, when you get to the end of the second half of Ephesians chapter 2, Verses 19 to 22, there's four separate metaphors about this, this act that God is doing of bringing us to make us his people, and they're, they're all collective, every one of them. Um, one more illustration, and I'll go to the next four, and the next two will go fast. Do you know that when we uh, started working through the logistics of merging, we use a Christian software? And the software lets us keep a kind of a database of who people are and, and they're coming. It allows them to keep track of giving so that we can give receipts to people that tax-exempt purposes. It allows us to put our songs together and, and let everyone get songs. Apparently, it does a whole lot of stuff. 
planning center. I think that's what it's called. I'm not sure. I, I'm technologically illiterate. I mean, I'm, I'm a technophobe. I'm, I'm a digital exile. But, but do you know that when we went to them and we said, okay, so two, mer- two churches and we're going to merge, what is the protocol to merge planning centers? They said, well, uh, we have protocol to divide, but we do not have a protocol for two congregations to merge. That is a powerful metaphor about our society. African pastors were invited to, well, pastors from all over the globe were invited to a conference here in the U.S., and they decided to bless the African pastors, and each African pastor got their own room. These were adults. Uh, These were established pastors. In fact, they were established enough that they were chosen to be flown over on, on the organization's nickel. And, and go through this conference. And so we want to bless them, gave them each their own room. By day three, housekeeping went to the conference leaders and they said, we think that, that half or more of your African pastors have all checked out. And you're like, what do you mean they checked out? Well, there's no suitcase in their room, their towels aren't used, and their beds have not been slept in. And they said, well, they're at the conference. They're not in their rooms. And they went to one of the lead African pastors and they said, what, what's going on here? He said, I, I've never slept in a room by myself. He felt scared. And so two, three, or four pastors all moved into one room. Because for them, this we is, is part and parcel of their Christian experience. Four. We. For we are. Now, Ryan's going to really have to unpack this one in two weeks because I'm going to give the fun part. He's going to give the little more challenging part. We are means it's a done deal. We are his canvas. It's a done deal, folks. It's not saying we should be. It's not saying become like. It's not grow into. It's we are. For we are his canvas. We exist as his canvas, and we're his masterpiece. And this goes back to my earlier comment about the kingdom. The kingdom's here, and yet not. It's here, but it's not. We are his canvas. And yet he's still kind of painting there. And Ryan's going to talk about the painting in there. But I want to talk about the we are. We are. You'll hear this from me over and over and over the next six months. In the scriptures, the imperative is based on the indicative. God states what is true and then says, go live into it. You are forgiven, live like it. You are holy, go live like it. You are the the bride of Christ. You know, uh, Jesus is coming back for a bride without spot or wrinkle. So here, you don't have to show hands, but does anyone actually here think it means he's going to wait till we get our act together? Because if that's the case, he ain't never coming back, folks. I know some of you are saying, no, wait, wait, wait. This is the bride without spot or wrinkle? Yep. And then you're saying, okay, this is your first Sunday here, isn't it, Matt? Because it's not hard to look around and see some spots and some wrinkles. But in the economy of God, we are. We're his masterpiece. We're his canvas. The purpose of which is to display Jesus, God, the Redeemer. We are a masterpiece, not to show the masterpiece, 
but to show the creator of the masterpiece. We are his. Uh, by the way, that, so English doesn't always do what sometimes Greek can do. And I don't like to refer to Greek too often, but I just can't help it at times. In this passage, the word his, altu, actually shows up in the position of prominence. In other words, it is the first word in this little section of Scripture. It doesn't say, for we are his workmanship or we are his canvas, but it says, his, for we are. Because Paul wants to emphasize that we're his canvas. He is doing this. You know, when, when I, so Ryan left before we did the merge, and I'm sure he was a little nervous, what if they blow it? Um, but I trust the people, I know the people. And I left after we merged, and I had the same fears. But the reality is, we're his. We're his canvas. And Paul wants to make that very clear for us. We are his canvas. His position of prominence. Okay, takeaways. And then we're going to move into communion. Folks, as we look at our name, canvas is made by grace. And it's through faith. It's his work. It's his act. It's his doing. And it's for his glory. He is going to show himself to the world he created through his canvas that he has created. And we're it. It's by grace and it's through faith. But as his canvas, we are a separate kingdom. We're a kingdom outpost. The kingdom is bigger than this local congregation. This local congregation just happens to be the, a manifestation in the city of Winchester of his wonderful canvas that he's created as his bride. And so we get to be an outpost of that kingdom. And it's an outpost where the end result is a done deal. God's full kingdom is coming. Redemption is fully happening. He will win the universe. And we get to be part of that. And we're, we're an outpost in a place where it doesn't always feel like that, just like if you think of the American West, some of those outposts that we put out there, you thought, man, they're never going to make it. But over time, that leaven just leavens the whole bread. We're done by grace. We're a kingdom outpost. And we're a kingdom outpost that is called not just to protect, but for radical hospitality kingdom outpost that says you're welcome. All are welcome. All are welcome. We love you just the way you are. Now we love you too much to leave you that way. Because our goal is that you're included into the canvas and not everyone gets to be in the canvas. It takes grace by faith. But from our part, come. You're welcome. And the place at which people say, man, I I think I believe this. Then our call is to commit. My biggest fear when the church grows is the church gets weak. That's my biggest fear. And the outpost that, that Jesus has called us to be is a high commitment outpost. 
not one that shows up on Sunday, gets blessed, a good family stuff, and, and my kids like it, and that's why I do it. That's, that's for those who haven't yet committed. But that somehow, we're called to be his canvas to display him. The end result is not my salvation, it's his glorification. And my salvation is a piece of that, it's a part of that. I get to participate in it. So I'm going to invite you to communion in just a minute. We have four stations. There's bread. There's a cup. There are the individual ones for those who prefer to use those. Um, I suspect that by our second month, I'm going to figure out how to direct you. But right now, we're just going to let the Spirit of God direct you. Spirit of God did take chaos and make order, so I hope you're going to be well. But I want to remind you as we go to partake of communion that the night that Jesus inaugurated communion was at the moment that as their great role model, he was clearly going all in for his Father, all in for the kingdom, all in for the canvas that God was was creating and building. That for him, in that moment, he was not inviting to believe, he was inviting to commit. He was inviting to a, a radical journey, kingdom focus. We practice open communion here. That means that Jesus is your Lord and Savior. You are welcome to partake. You do not have to be a member here. You don't have to be a regular attender here. But we hope that everyone, as you partake of the sacrifice of Jesus, that you have the same mindset that the early disciples had in those three days, partaking and then watching it acted out and realizing that the, the common union that Jesus was calling them to was an all-in as his canvas. Lord Jesus, on the night that you were betrayed, you did take bread and you broke it. You did take a cup and you you renamed it. You redefined it. You told us as often as we eat and drink this, this bread and this cup, we do so in remembrance of you at that moment of ultimate commitment for us and through us. So now, Lord, may we experience your grace, both in receiving and in going, as we partake of the sacrifice of Jesus and celebrate that we are his canvas. Amen. You are welcome to come as the Lord leads.